Good morning, church. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading in the first opening verses there in just a moment. Luke chapter 1, if you want to find your place in your copy of God's Word. When I was growing up, my earliest memories of Christmas were, were really good. I was the only grandchild, and um, at least for a little while, and so as the only grandchild, it was great. It was great. How many of y'all were the only grandchild for a while? Anybody? It was good, wasn't it? So, um, so those early years were good, and then uh, through my later childhood and teenage years, not so good. A lot of unhappiness in my own heart. Ultimately, God used that. I came to know the Lord Jesus um, as a 17-year-old, as a senior in high school. But, but, uh, but Christmas, really, especially after I came to know the Lord, I just saw all of the things that had nothing to do with Jesus in Christmas and when I first started out. And so I was kind of down on decorations. Right, Gail? Wasn't I down on? Yeah. So-so. Okay. I was down on decorations. I did what I was told. And, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't really excited about it, and, and it was hard to get into it. Now, that has changed, especially as our children grew up and as we had, now have grandchildren. You know, I'm a lot more into it, a lot more excited about it. But one thing I do know about Christmas and Thanksgiving and a lot of holidays is, is if you are having a hard time, if you are struggling in your heart with hopelessness, with sadness, with loss, the holidays are like a magnifying glass. They just have a, a way of magnifying what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. And so when I think about preaching through the holidays, I, I didn't have breakfast, <laughs> but that wasn't me. <laughs> so so I would, I, would, um, I would always, in, in preaching at Christmas time, think about individuals sitting in a church family who, for you, Christmas is not necessarily a time for excitement, but it can be a time of great difficulty in your own heart. And, and if that's not your experience, dear one, you know someone, and it is that way for them. And so I want us to think this morning very carefully about this, this whole idea of down feelings or, or feeling low during the holidays for whatever reason. And, and in this series of messages that we're going to go through between now and December 23rd, which will be a Sunday morning, and that'll be our, our last study in this particular series, I just want you to try to enter into this Christmas season maybe with a, a real expectation because no matter how many Christmases you've experienced, I believe that there are dimensions of the truth that God has yet to reveal to you about what he did when he sent his son into the world. And so, and so I'm calling this the Christmas awakening because if you and I play hard and we take up his word and we, we enter into what I believe he wants to do in our lives individually and as a church, there is an awakening available to you as you explore, as you discover those new dimensions of Christmas that God has for you as an individual. 
And you say, well, Pastor, I already know everything there is to know about Christmas. No, you don't. I promise you, you don't. And that our Father has yet things he wants to reveal to you. And today I want to talk specifically about waking up to his power. There are people in the stories surrounding Christmas and the birth of Jesus who had gone for 400 years without hearing a word from God, a contemporary word from the Lord. And as Jesus is being sent into this world, coming as a baby, people are waking up to many things related to God and his love for his people. And today we're going to look at waking up to his power. There are people who didn't believe that God was active in the world, that God was doing anything in the world, and now they are waking up to his power. Let me call your attention to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And by the way, if you just skim those first four verses, this is at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And those of you who are Bible scholars will remember that Luke was a physician, and his stated purpose was to prepare a, 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 a document of the life of Christ that puts together in chronological order the main things that took place. And because that was Luke's stated purpose, he wants to undergird your faith with the truth about the life of Christ. And so he, he gathered through his meeting and discussions with eyewitnesses these stories and roughly a third of the Gospel of Luke you will not find in Matthew, Mark, or John. They are unique to Luke and his investigation and his reporting of what happened around the life of Christ. And so the very first story begins in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now, Zacharias was a priest. That day and time, there were probably people who had legal rights, hereditary rights to being a priest. There were, there were roughly 24,000 men. They were divided up in such a way that each, they were, there were 24 courses or 24 groups of priests. So about 1,000 men in each group. And for two weeks a year, no matter where they lived in the Holy Land, for two weeks a year, they were to come to Jerusalem and they served. They conducted all the temple functions and all the work that had to be done. They came for two weeks and they did it. Now of those thousand men, they would draw lots, like drawing straws. They would draw lots. And certain of those men would get to perform the most sacred functions of the day. There was the sacrifice twice a day of a lamb on the altar. It would happen at 9 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon. Associated with that sacrifice was a time of prayer. And it was believed that if you were at the temple at that time, uh, you would participate in this time of prayer that would be offered to God. And 
and I'm going to describe that for you in just a moment, but a priest would go into the temple and would burn incense, and that incense, the smoke would go up through the roof, and the people would see that, and they would pray twice a day. And, and so Zechariah, he's part of this tradition. He's part of this religious activity. And the temple is organized. This, this temple is organized in such a way that if you were a Gentile, you weren't Jewish, there was a place you could go, the court of the Gentiles. It was the outermost court. But that's as far as you could go. If you were Jewish, particularly a Jewish woman, you could go into the next sanctuary area, the next court area. And it was the court of women. And if you were a Jewish woman, you could go there, but that's as far as you could go. And then they had the court of Israel where the Jewish men could go and they could stand and worship. And, and none of these are inside the building of the temple. These are all courtyards. And there was the court of Israel and the men could go there. And then there was a court of the priests. And all those thousand priests could gather there twice a day for that time of prayer. But then when you went into the temple, there were two spaces. One was called the holy place, and the other was the holiest place, or the holy of holies. And, and one priest would go in there during the time of prayer. So, so at each layer, at each movement towards where the presence of God was believed to exist, which is in the holiest of holies, and it was behind a big thick veil, nobody could go in there. Fewer and fewer people could draw near to God. And so a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity took place. When this man, Zacharias, married to Elizabeth, not having any children or offspring, gets the opportunity to go in during the time of prayer, and so he does. And on that particular day, he would have walked through the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as they could go. The court of the women, all the women had to stay there. The court of Israel, all the men had to stay there. The court of the priests, they all had to stay there. But then he went into the the holy place. He was accompanied by two other priests. When he went into the holy place, there was this huge veil, 60-foot ceiling, and a huge veil that was there that separated the holy place from the presence of God. And if he went, as he went into that room, accompanied by those two other priests, a lamb had already been slaughtered outside, time of prayer, bloodshed for the sins of Israel, allowing access to the presence of God. So these three priests would walk in, one man, there were three things in that room. On, on the left side, there was, a, there was a candelabra. It provided light in the holy place. To the right, there was a table. It's called the table of showbread. And on that table, there would be 12 loaves of bread, freshly cooked. And the priest ultimately would eat it. But what was interesting about that table is that it was the same kind of table you would find in any common Jewish home. And it, it was a picture of the hospitality, the intimacy, the communion of people who were guests in the home. And that was there, the table of showbread. And, and so one priest would come in with fresh coals because right in the center, before you got the veil, right in the center, there was an altar of incense and there were hot coals on there. And one priest would come in with fresh coals. The other one would carry out the dead coals and those two men would leave and Zacharias is now by himself in the holy place. Nobody else is there. And he comes in into this amazing opportunity. 
And he goes over to the table of showbread and he takes some incense off of it and he spreads it out on the coals and the incense begins to, to burn and smoke. And he begins to pray. Now what you need to know at this moment, what Luke has done, he's gone back to the earliest story that had anything to do with the birth of Jesus and he's telling you that story. Because it's been over 400 years since the last prophet said something that was written down in the Old Testament. God has been silent as far as the people of God are concerned. Are they expecting the Messiah? Yes. Are they looking forward to the coming Christ? Yes. But it's been so long, how deeply held was that belief and conviction? It's hard to say. So here he is. But what, you want, what I want you to know about Zacharias is that not having had a child, the great prayer of his heart was that God would give him a baby. That he and Elizabeth would have a child together. And so he's there in official business, yes. And while he's standing there and he's praying, and we know he's praying for a child. We'll see this in just a moment. He's, while he's standing there praying for a child, he and Elizabeth, this thing that they've wanted for years, an angel appears to the right side of that altar of incense, right in front of him. He's no longer alone in the holy place. I don't know what you would have said in that moment. I think I would have yelled. I think I would have maybe, first of all, been afraid, which is, by the way, what happened to Zacharias. I would have had some feeling of Zacharias being afraid, or maybe, depending on how big he was and if I thought I could take him, I might challenge him and say, what are you doing in here? Nobody else is supposed to be in here. I drew the lots. You're not, get out, you know, tell him to leave. But it was something unexpected. And so the first thing I want to say to you this morning about hopelessness is this. First of all, your hope is lost when your view is limited to your circumstances. Your hope is lost when your view is limited to your circumstances. Now, the angel's giving him the answer to his prayers. He's saying, Zacharias, God has heard you. He's been listening to this prayer you've been praying. You've been praying it a long time. He's heard it every time. Your prayer's never gone unheard. And now God has been listening to you. He should have picked up from that. God's not forgotten me. And this is true of every person here. God has never forgotten you. You've never been out of his mind. He's never thought, whoops, I wonder what's happening to Don Fusick today. I need to check on him. You're never forgotten. In, in his case, it would have been possible to believe that somehow he had been forsaken by God because barrenness was seen as some kind of punishment, some kind of shame from God on a couple when they couldn't have a child. This man was saying to him, this angel, God's not only not forgotten you, he's not forsaken you. There's nothing wrong with you. God has heard your prayers. You are, you are no more worthy or unworthy than any other human being. You are not unworthy, not forgotten, not forsaken. But look, Zacharias tunes out the good news. He tunes it out. 
the reaction that you would expect him to have is not there. The thing he's been praying for for decades is now being, is coming. It's on the way. There's an angel standing before him, a miracle. He tunes it out, tunes out the good news. The only thing he can tune into are his circumstances, his own personal circumstances and experiences. That's all he can tune into. Everything else is blocked. Everything else is cut off. It's like a barrier. He can only see what he can see, and it's only those things, those things that are up close and personal. And so he has no hope. And hope is lost when our view is limited just to our circumstances. I want to share with you four symptoms of hopelessness. This may be you, or it may be someone you know, or something you've experienced at some time in your life. But I want, to, I want you to see what happens when our sense of the power of God is non-existent, or we've totally excluded it from the equation of our life. Here's the first thing. You're going through life spiritually numb and emotionally flat. Spiritually numb and emotionally flat. You read through these verses. Well, let me just read them. Here's what the angel said. He said, you're going to bear a son. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, verse 13, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And will, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha. This is amazing. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And how does he respond to that? I don't, I don't, I don't know how this can happen. Just meh, bleh. I mean, his heart is just, it's just, it's just flat. And maybe you feel that way. People, you know, things you used to get excited about, about this time of year, not happening for you. But more significantly, the things that used to excite you about God, not so much. You used to be able to read his word and your heart would be moved. Not right now. You would hear songs. We would sing songs to the Lord, and your heart would be lifted up by that experience. Not now. And so one of the symptoms of this hopelessness is that nothing excites you anymore. Here's a second symptom. Focusing on your probabilities instead of God's capabilities. He says, I am old. Now, what's interesting is he's alone in the holy place when he says the next thing. Because I don't know what Elizabeth would have thought of the next statement. He said, I am old, and my wife is advanced in years. You know what that means? She's way down the road in years. <laughs> I'm old. She's really old. Those are bold words. But that's all I can see. He's not seeing. An angel from God has spoken to me that my wife's going to have a boy. All he's thinking about are the probabilities of that. That's just not, that doesn't make any sense. He's got an adding machine going in his heart and his mind. He cannot see that this is possible. A third symptom of hopelessness, praying without expecting a response. His prayer life had, had degenerated into just a recitation. 
but there was no intimacy. There was no relationship in his prayer life. He was being what we would call a good Christian person. Maybe he had a prayer list, things he, he carried into that holy place. Here's this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What's he going to do? He's going to grab the things he prays about all the time. He's going to grab whatever prayer requests people handed him going in the door, and he's going to lay that out before God, and he starts praying through those things. But is he connecting at a heart level with God? Is he seeking to have communion with God. One minute of encounter with the person of God can revolutionize your heart attitude this morning. Just seconds of encounter with your Father can change your whole heart. But he's praying, going through the motions, the angel comes, says, God has heard your prayer. And instead of excitement, there's some kind of surprise to me, I think, as I read this. He's not expecting a response. He's just tired. He's exhausted. No telling how many times he's prayed the same prayer over and over and over and over. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please. God, please. God, please. God, please. And somewhere along the way, he lost faith, lost expectation, and lost contact on a heart level with his father. Fourth symptom of hopelessness, hearing truth without counting on it, unbelief. Hearing truth without counting on it. The angel says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. What prayer? The prayer for a son. Because that's what he says next. He tells him the son is coming. You've got a boy that's coming. Elizabeth's going to conceive. Your prayer is heard. But he's not counting on it. So hopelessness, there's a direct relationship, I believe, between hopelessness and our sense of the power of God. And so as we move to this next statement, I want you to see the connection between the two. Number two, your hope rises with your awareness of the power of God. As you and I become more focused on his capability, what he is doing, what he intends to do, his plans, his purposes, I can have hope. In verse 63, now in between the appearance and the temple, you need to, you need to understand what happened. The angel spoke to Zechariah when Zechariah asked his question, how can I know this? You're telling me I'm going to have a boy. How can I know this? I'm old. My wife's really, really old. The angel says, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm Gabriel. I've been sent by God. And I've been sent by God with these glad tidings. That's what he says. I've been sent with these glad tidings. And the end of the conversation, he says, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to speak until the things I told you were going to happen, happen. And he can't speak. He comes out. He can't say anything. And the people outside, the thousand priests, they're marveling at this. The people standing in the various courtyards, they're marveling at this. He goes in talking, comes out not talking. He goes home. The Bible says his wife conceives, just like God said. He still can't talk. A few months later, Mary shows up. 
cousin to Elizabeth. She's expecting. She stays for three months in their home. Elizabeth tells Zachariah that when Mary showed up, that the boy inside of her leapt with joy. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit, Zacharias. Her, she, she tells her husband about it. He sees this. He understands that this is special. This is the, the Christ in Mary's womb. He gets that. And his son's to be the forerunner like Elijah. He gets that. Still can't speak. Mary goes home. Elizabeth gives birth. He still can't speak. Day one goes by, day two go by, eight days go by. Now it's time for the, the ceremonial circumcision. We won't go into a lot of detail on that. But they get ready. That's when they name the child. And they're going to name this boy. And they want to, all the people gathered there with Elizabeth and the baby. And then Zechariah, who can't say anything, they're all gathered there. And the people say, well, you're going to name the boy after the daddy, right? Because that was customary. You're going to name him Zacharias, right? Elizabeth says, no, 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 he's got to be named John. And the people said, no, that's not right, let's ask Dad. I'm not going to listen to her, she's really old. <laughs> and, and so he asked for something to write with. And he writes it down, and in verse 63 we read, and he asked for a writing tablet <laughs> and wrote saying, his name is John what he wrote down. And the moment he wrote that down, it says, so they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God. Now I can talk. Because in that act, in that moment when he said, this guy's name, this little guy's name is John, because the angel told me his name is John. And don't you think that he had a sense of the power of God by that moment? That God could take an old man and a really, really old woman and produce a son? A son? And this man who had prayed endlessly for the same thing, no faith, lost heart, emotionally flat, life I'm going to live for God, but I'm not excited about it. You know, that's where he's at. And God just changed all of that and demonstrated his power to Zacharias. And dear one, he wants you to know his power. If you're hopeless today, if there's something I could encourage you to do, and I'm going to encourage you to do several things, but if I encourage you to do one thing, I'd say turn to the Lord don't focus on your circumstances. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. And your hope will rise. So he did the last thing. He acted on what the angel had said. He named him John. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody marveled. And this man begins to, to sing and speak in poetry. And you can read that for yourself as he talks about what God had done. Now, I want to I pose this question and really close with this question. How can I awaken to his power this Christmas? If people at the first nativity were waking up to the power of God, had gone hundreds of years without being conscious of the power of God, how can I awaken to the power of God this Christmas? 
And so I'm, I'm providing you some guidance, some direction, I pray, some hope. I believe from the Lord if you are struggling with being hopeless or powerless in your life today. Number one, read his word and listen with your heart. Read his word and listen with your heart. I don't know where your Bible is. I don't know if you even own a Bible. But if you're struggling with hopelessness, you need to read God's Word. It is not an ordinary book that you read one time and you say, well, I read that. It is a living thing. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible, but the God of the Bible spoke the Bible into existence. And when you and I read it, His Word, His Word, dear one, created the universe. He just spoke it into being. Let there be. And He spoke it into being. I want you to know that there is a Word that He has for you in the Scripture, that as you read His Word, it will create in you what he wants to create in you. His word is powerful. And I want to encourage you to read it. And to read it at a heart level. Not just content. But Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what are you saying to me? He got in an argument at one point with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious group in Israel that believed when you died, you died. And there was nothing after death, no resurrection to look forward to. And so, you know, when we teach this in Bible school and, and seminary, say the, the way to remember the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in the res resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection, and, and Jesus speaking to them, they come to him, and they're trying to trap him, and they say, look, there's a woman, she gets married, her husband dies, and, uh, and according to the Old Testament law, the next brother to keep up the, the legacy of the, of the brother that died would have to marry her and try to produce offspring, so the second brother marries her, and he dies, and the third brother, he dies, the fourth brother, he dies, and, and the fifth brother should have his brain checked. You know, seriously, but... But this goes on, seven men are dead. When, when she is resurrected, they said, Jesus, whose husband will be her husband? And this is what Jesus said. This is Matthew 22. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Do you see, put the two together. You don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. But if you understand the Scriptures, do you think you understand the power of God? Reverse it out. Use God's word. He, he gave it to you for that purpose. Second, second word of counsel, rest in his promises to his people. There are promises throughout the scripture, but there are specific promises that God has that I believe that as you read them, you're going to say, that's for me. And rest in his promises. James 4, 8, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You say, how am I going to seek God? How am I going to find God? He says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Number three, 
Keep praying and waiting for his response. Keep praying and waiting for his response. Nothing blesses your father more than when you keep coming to him about the same issue. He taught us to be persistent in prayer. If you go read the opening verses of Luke 18, you can just jot that down. He tells the story about a woman who encounters a judge, and he's not particularly a just judge, but she keeps coming to him again and again for justice. I need justice. People have been unjust to me. I need justice. And, and, and finally he says, because this woman keeps coming to me and she's wearing me out, I'm going to give her justice. Now Jesus told the story. And he says, hear what the unjust judge said. Now it's not that God is hard of hearing or that he is somehow resistant to answering your prayer. But he goes on and he says, hear what he said because will God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night for justice? And then he says something really interesting. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He says to be persistent. And, and, he, and when he talks about persistence, he tells the story of this woman who's persistent, but then he describes the saints who cry out to God day and night. They're persistent. They're persistent. And when Jesus returns, he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of faith? The kind of faith that cries out day and night, even though there's not been an answer yet. The kind of faith that persists and keeps praying and keeps praying and keeps praying. Will he find faith like that? People that know that God's there, know that God exists, know that God has a plan and a purpose and puts their trust in him so much so that they're not looking anywhere else for anyone else to take care of them or protect them except their father. Will he find that kind of faith on the earth? You see, nothing else pleases God in your life like your faith pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Keep praying and waiting for His response. And then number four, I would encourage you to do this, especially this Christmas time, and this is probably the easiest time of the year to do this. Praise Him now for who He is and what He is doing. Praise Him now for who He is and what he is doing. You say, well, I don't know what he's doing. That's the point. You praise him now anyway. Because he's, he's doing something. He has a plan. He is at work. And no matter whether your circumstances show that or not, doesn't mean it's not true. Too many times we try to figure out what God's doing by looking at our circumstances. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible teaches us to simply thank God, to trust him. And to praise him. One of my favorite passages on this subject, and you can just jot it down, Habakkuk 3, verse 17 to 19. Listen to this. If you're a person who's struggling with praising God now, thanking God now, listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, 
though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, and he means in those circumstances, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He just described nothing going right. Yet, in those circumstances, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And then he says what's coming. Here's the plan. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. He will do those things. And so can you praise the Lord now? You and I live in a world where hundreds of thousands, millions of believers live under governments where they are not free to witness. They are not free to preach. They are not free to gather and worship like this. They're rejoicing in the Lord today. We have millions of our own family members who don't even believe you're growing in Christ properly unless you've been to prison at least once. And they're rejoicing in the Lord today. We have people who have lost family members who, to death, to persecution, for the name of Jesus, they're rejoicing in the Lord today. There are people sitting in this room today who've experienced great loss, and I know some of you, and you're rejoicing in the Lord today. Do it now. Do it now. Your greatest need is not that your circumstances change. Your greatest need is that you see God. Is that you gain a fresh vision of God. 